0: Our program continues with a case presented to Drs. Koblay and Holmes by Dr. Carolyn Hendricks.
1: This is a 44-year-old woman, a public school teacher, who presented to me fairly recently, just under a year ago, with widely metastatic breast cancer at the time that I met her. She had been previously diagnosed two years prior to that after presenting with an abnormal screening mammogram. She underwent a breast biopsy at that time. She was found to have a 2.2 centimeter, high-grade, receptor negative, HER2 score 1+, plus, not overexpressed, breast primary, and she underwent mastectomy as her primary surgery. She had some residual grade 3 carcinoma in the breast, negative surgical margins were achieved, and she had 13 negative axillary nodes. She saw another oncologist in the community at that time, and adjuvant chemotherapy was recommended to her, but she declined adjuvant chemotherapy, and she was lost to any oncology follow-up for a period of two years.
0: Were we able to find out what went on in those discussions and why she didn't want to get chemo?
1: No, she does express some regret now at not having undergone adjuvant therapy at that time. And you could
0: talk a little bit more about her background, and was she working, her family situation?
1: She was working. She's single, not married. I would say... Relatively little in the way of family support, and as I've gotten to know her now, a history of heavy alcohol use that I was not aware of at the time
0: when I first met her. What does she teach? Elementary school teacher. Elementary school Mm -hmm. teacher. Elementary school. And how long had she had a problem with alcohol?
1: It looks like it was fairly long-standing. I would say it was obviously not impairing her ability to work, but it became apparent later. Okay. She did not disclose it at the time of my initial evaluation of her. At any rate, what started to occur was she started to develop symptoms of very widespread hepatic metastatic disease, gradually, fairly insidious. Starting out with indigestion, decreased appetite, feeling very full abdominal pain, and then gradually very significant anasarca. And she actually sought medical attention. She saw her family physician. She saw a gastroenterologist. She even had an upper endoscopy at a time when I think she had very impressive physical findings that would have pointed to another cause of some of these symptoms. But then she underwent a CT scan that showed this large burden of hepatic metastatic disease and ascites she was scanned and that the scan widespread disease in the liver and the spleen. She also had multiple bony lesions and she underwent a liver biopsy that confirmed the presence of metastatic disease.
0: Maybe I can just stop at this point and ask the faculty how they think they would manage her in this situation. We'll start with Frankie.
2: Well, the bone part's easy. She gets Samita. And in terms of her systemic disease, what's her bilirubin? She was not John, She did not have an elevated bilirubin initially. So So she's got an aggressive presentation. You don't have many shots with her, chances to save her. So I would use a standard anthracycline-based regimen up front for her, like a FAC or a FEC. If I couldn't get her into a clinical trial, I would certainly hope that she could be in a clinical trial. The ribbon trial had an anthracycline plus bevacizumab.
0: What about bevacizumab off-study?
2: I haven't really given the anthracyclines with Bevacizumab, so I have a little concerns about the safety issues on that, though I know there is some safety dishes. What
0: about paclitaxel Bev?
2: Well, that's the other thing. Or I, I was toying NAB in my. Nab paclitaxel Yeah, Bev. in my mind whether I would avoid the upfront anthracycline, but that's my two differentials. That's the next thing to consider paclitaxel Bev. It paclitaxel
0: is- or nab paclitaxel?
2: Again, depending on what your insurance is, because the NAB paclitaxel is what I would want to use, but it depends on what your insurance company would allow. But she needs something very effective right away. So I think the bevacizumab plus the taxane or an upfront anthracycline-based regimen.
0: Melody, how would you think it through?
2: What were her liver enzymes? Her transaminases were in the range of 100
1: to 150, but her bilirubin was not elevated initially. She showed protein calorie malnutrition, so she was also hypoalbuminemic. This is a little bit, you know, kick Big big burden of ascites.
3: So HER2 her, her two was 1+, and the tumor obviously had not been fished, or you would have said that. I would start the fish going, because I think anybody with metastatic breast cancer deserves the best test that we have for HER2 status, and there are certainly a certain percentage of patients with 1+, plus by IHC, who actually are fish positive. But let's presume that she is a triple negative breast cancer patient, I totally agree with Frankie that we need to do everything we can for this patient, and I would give her combination chemotherapy, and I would make weekly Taxol part of that. One of the things that's nice about weekly Taxol or weekly Abraxane, to me, they're the same drug as just Abraxane or nabpaclitaxel, I should say, is a safer, better tolerated and possibly more effective drug. But the nice thing is that you can give that weekly, and with her elevated transaminases, you'll get an idea after the first dose of, say, 80 per meter squared if she's going to get severe toxicity from it. We certainly know that we can add gem to that. Another thing I would think of is using a taxane with carbo under this situation because in these triple negative patients, there is this sort of feeling that they seem to be sensitive to platinum compounds. What about Bev? I would definitely use Bev as well. That, to me, is a freebie.
0: Taxane, Bev, what about capecitabine on top of that?
3: Well, capecitabine has been evaluated with docetaxel, and certainly the combination is better than capecitabine alone. But I like the weekly taxane approach to this patient, especially with her LFT abnormalities. So can you describe what
1: what happened? I was was influenced by E20. This was last fall, so I was influenced actually coming here to the meeting and hearing the input about that combination. I had never given it before. This was the first patient that I treated as the first-line metastatic with weekly paclitaxel and bevacizumab because I had heard these anecdotal stories of very impressive responses, and she had one. She had 12 weeks of that combination, and she had dramatic improvement. Her liver was no longer palpable. Her ascites resolved. And her functional status improved quite dramatically. She just, you know, overall sense of well-being. Her transaminases is then nearly normal.
0: Any hypertension?
1: No, and no proteinuria. But she started developing nosebleeds fairly early in the course, even to the point of a nasal septal perforation. And she went to an ENT physician, and her nosebleeds were related to a nasal septal perforation. But what happened after 12 weeks was she had a very severe lower GI bleed. It's a dark stool, hemoglobin 7.8, very symptomatic, and she underwent an endoscopy. The initial endoscopy was just nonspecific, gastritis. She had some esophagitis and gastritis, but it didn't look like that was the cause of this very impressive fall in her hemoglobin, which required transfusions, and she went to another gastroenterologist. She was found to have extensive variceal bleeding as a cause of that, which made a lot more sense. And that's how some of the, her alcohol exposure, the gastroenterologist thought that that had been at play and that she had pre-existing liver disease
0: so you hadn't suspected up to that point? That's
1: correct. And so this is really ticked to the present time. I just got the results of this endoscopy. She feels great now because she's been transfused, and you know, her hemoglobin now is 11, and she's had this impressive
0: response. Has there been some discussion with her in terms of maybe getting her some support or treatment for her alcoholism?
1: Yes, yes, there has been, and she was a little bit more open. The gastroenterologist actually opened the door, and she was receptive
0: so what's the plan in terms of that? Is she going to go to a drug treatment type yes, of situation? Yes, to supportive counseling. Has she started that?
1: Actually, I just saw her on Monday and she had seen the gastroenterologist a couple of weeks, you know, in a row to monitor her and she was receptive and this is How a-
0: did she feel about, you know, kind of the alcoholism getting out on the table here and doing something about it?
1: She didn't manifest it a lot to me. But I know that
0: she spoke to her gastroenterologist So you didn't really talk too much to her about it? No. Interesting. Frankie, any thoughts about the case? And also, where things are heading now? Are you going to keep the Bev going?
2: So first of all, it's terrific. The second question I had was, so she was still actively drinking? I mean, at this point?
1: No. The gastroenterologist had felt that the alcohol intake was the reason why she had this impressive esophageal varices out of proportion to what they had expected. It was really two processes, which is why she had such massive hepatomegaly and ascites. And I think the burden of metastatic breast cancer in her liver is what made them manifest.
2: So that it still felt that she does need some emotional support going to AA? I mean, yes. it sounds like... Okay. Yeah, she has
1: a cirrhotic pattern now that her liver has shrunk from the metastatic disease. Now she looks like she has more of a pattern of hepatic cirrhosis that was not clinically apparent before.
2: Okay. Just the other issue that you alluded to, we also saw this problem with epistaxis with weekly taxol, and you know people didn't always realize that. Now it's part of my exam. Anybody who is on a weekly taxane, they get their nose looked at and their conjunctiva looked at. I think it's not an unreasonable thing to consider continuing maintenance bevacizumab if you can do that with her insurance-wise and in terms of her... It wasn't so much an insurance issue. The
1: gastroenterologist saw, you know, such a significant amount of bleeding at this time of endoscopy. I think the bleeding risk, Ah, hemorrhagic risk, is quite great. So her varices... And her nasal septum has not... The
2: NT Ah. physician felt that that was not going to resolve. Frankie, what
0: do we know about Bev and the epistaxis in the nose?
2: I personally have had some patients on the nab-paclitaxel and the bevacizumab, and we've had to hold doses. The nab-paclitaxel is three weeks on, one week off on the weekly, and so I have a number of patients that I have held the week two dose so that they're getting it twice a month, basically.
0: Do we know why Bev would cause epistaxis, incidentally? I don't know whether you've seen this with colon cancer. It's interesting that docs in practice use more Bev than breast cancer researchers because they've it's used It's not approved. This, I mean, fight some, the insurance. Right. It's not approved. In is, you know the data's been out there. Do you see... Oh, role? sure. Yeah, we see it. I mean, usually not to the extent that you end up in the ER and all that sort of thing, but I've seen, I'd say, a number of patients, I'd say at least maybe one out of 10 or something gets... I don't remember asking anybody why this happens. Any speculations, Melody?
3: I don't know, but if you ask, it happens in virtually everybody who's on Bevacizumab.
0: You know, it could be, just thinking off the top of my head, that one of the things is, is dryness. I know with, when we deal with leukemics, one of the things is, is, it's not so much that the anti-leukemic drugs cause epistaxis, initially with the low platelet count, but things get dry with the high heat, the dry heat. So one of the things maybe, one of the things that we've done with patients who are on bevacizumab. I won't use the trade name, is that we make sure that they put either Vaseline or some sort of cream in their nose every day with a Q-tip. And they learn to do this, and it really has, and this is just totally anecdotal, we've decreased the amount of dripping. Okay, because there's nothing like getting called 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning that you got a patient in with a bleed and getting an ENT out because you don't know whether or not it's an anterior bleed or a posterior bleed. But keeping that area moist, I think, is a big thing because I think what happens, it dries out. You see the little bit of blood vessels there, and that just with the Bevacizumab, if there's a little blare, they blow their nose. It's an increased thing for bleeding. So an observation Just one practice. other thing.
2: I mean, when you said alcohol, I didn't hear any cocaine. You know, it's more common than you think, and that can cause nasal septal perforations. Sure. I mean, who knows what was there before, but it hasn't come out. But I guess I hear you, and having to look at that woman and go through her course of that bleeding. Are her varices, obviously she's got the cirrhosis, she's got hypersplenism, she's got thrombocytopenia, The little leukopenias. I guess one would have to be very much more circumspect about continuing that
0: Obviously, Melody, lung cancer, we're very tuned into the issue of hemoptysis, but that's really a different thing that we don't see in breast cancer. But what about a patient who has a bleeding problem from another cause and bevacizumab? Do we know anything about that? Not so much that it's the cause, but is it safe to utilize the drug?
3: Well, can I just drop back one second? Because before you told me what happened to this lady, I was predicting that this could happen. Because whenever you have somebody, forget the alcohol use, who has a liver that's virtually replaced with tumor and who has this dramatic response to treatment. Sometimes you win the battle, but you lose the war. And they develop cirrhosis, basically chemotherapy-induced cirrhotic livers in the absence of alcohol use. That's interesting,
0: because in a way that is like the speculations about the lung thing, that it's this dramatic response that's really the problem.
3: Well, I think in the lung it's more that the tumor is involving a major blood vessel. This is a little different, and we see it not just with Bev, but with rapid responses with a liver full of tumor. But anyway, be that as it may, I just anecdotally have had a couple of patients who required emergency surgery who were on the BEV clinical trials, and they did absolutely fine. So I think in the long run, your job, and you're really the only one who can do this as the oncologist, is to weigh what's going on with the tumor versus the other problems that the patient potentially might experience. And if she's having a terrific response to treatment, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's an absolute contraindication to continuing therapy that's extremely effective. But I suspect in this situation, it's not going to be pretty because of the cirrhosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Were you thinking no matter what you th- do, the treatment corner? I was just
1: thinking about it prospectively. She doesn't have a coagulopathy. I mean, she has some remaining hepatic reserve. She's not thrombocytopenic on the basis of her liver Disease, and I was not knowing whether to entertain some kind of dose modification or just she's on a beta blocker now in terms of her variceal. The gastroenterologist thought if we really blocked her down, that she would be at less risk for a rebleed, and just trying to know how to modify the regimen that produced such an impressive response. But I still do consider her to be at quite high risk.
0: What is the gastroenterologist saying about her risk in terms of you know a life-threatening bleed? High. Not a good situation, and uh-huh. probably no perfect answer.
2: Ammonia levels, anything like that? No, she's not hyperammonemic. She's not
1: shunt. You know, I haven't since such a long time since I've offered that as a modality. She doesn't have a lot of ascites. Now you mean a peritoneal shunt to recirculate
3: decompression? De- no. They can do these interventional radiologic procedures. I can't explain it exactly, Perineal but it would no a within vessel shunt. Oh, oh, a vascular shot. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, to decompress the liver and the spleen, remember to decompress that? the varices. Remember that from your training? <laughs> Talk about when doing you're, internal medicine. <laughs> like, oh.
0: <laughs> you know, like you know, getting called no? down to the ER for your mm. GI bleeding things. It's, it's interesting, though, that, you know, cardiology, dermatology, all kinds of skin things oncologists are dealing with. Coming now you've got to gotta be a hepatologist. Exactly. exactly.
2: Well, I was just going to say, if you could do that, then your canary in the mine is the nose. Because if she starts to bleed from the nose, then, you know, boom, i got to back off. And right. I don't know if you can measure levels of circulating VEGF or something, because I have done what you are suggesting, that is lowered the doses and giving what would be you know, non-therapeutic doses. Am I doing the right thing? Am I treating myself? I don't know. The patient and I have talked mm-hmm. about it, and so we're giving her these non-therapeutic doses to maintain a remission similarly.
0: Hmm. Alan, one of the problems we have with Bev, I think, in breast cancer is, the published data on Bev is pretty slim. Isn't that the case? And we're all kind of jumping in, myself included, using this drug. And we're thinking, oh, it's a targeted agent. Oh, it's non-toxic. But do we really even know what the toxicities are in breast cancer? And talking about even maintenance Bev, where is the data there to support that? And is it even safe to be talking about that with so little data out there? What about maintenance BEV or continuing BEV after you stop the taxing if you need to, Melody? I think that was done in the trial until the progression. The
3: way E2100 was written, you are allowed to stop the chemo and continue the BEV after six cycles. And so that sort of became the standard for people who got that far out. And so that is what I do. I think we pretty much understand the toxicities above now, and you get some hypertension. We know how to manage it. If the proteinuria gets significant, then you got to stop the drug. That's one thing we do know. So I feel pretty comfortable with that drug at this time. Alan is And the again, we have a situation where here. the manuscript hasn't. No, but
0: you know, people think that for sure. Pardon. I was saying that Alan, you know, represents a point of view in terms of you know we've seen this in a couple of these cases, and I think there's a spectrum of how much data people want to see. You know, one thing, Alan, though, there is a lot of data in other tumors, particularly colon. I mean, in terms of safety, and granted, it might not be exactly the same, obviously, bowel perforation, stuff like that, but even in the adjuvant setting now, he's starting to get some safety data from the NSABP. Starting to get the safety data. Yeah, no, for sure. Starting. I mean, it's yes. particularly in the adjuvant setting and long-term issues, and you wonder, certainly, we don't have any data in that situation.